worship team for leading us this morning and certainly for Pastor David and everyone else who helped with communion and certainly for those up the back, those who are going to do morning tea for us, those who are on welcome, it is great to have people who are willing to serve the Lord so that we can actually enjoy coming here and have some smiling faces for us first thing in the morning. It's, they're worth it. And they serve without acknowledgement, many of them. Are we going to have the Bible reading up? Because I think I've really messed up. Where are we starting? Okay, I'm going to start from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to finish at 20. Let's hear from the word of the Lord. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. What must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen, and may God bless this reading of his word. 
It's always a privilege to come and bring uh, God's word to you, and uh, particularly when the word has been challenging first and foremost to me. And it's interesting when we read through passages of scripture like Revelation, we do have a tendency, I think, to, to skip over so much of it. And in, in this first section we're going to look at, we're only going to be looking at verses 9 to 20 uh, in, in this passage of scripture this morning. And even contained in that are all these images which represent who Christ is. And there's some awesome stuff that it actually says about John as well here as well. And I'm really excited about the direction that we're taking as a people of God. We want to create those disciplined followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are willing to submit to him and follow his teaching. We want to see people closer to God at the end of this year than they are at the beginning. And I think this passage of scripture really speaks into that theme. Hopefully, as we listen to this, it'll be a great encouragement to each and every one of us. And hopefully, we'll have a desire to change things so that we can draw closer to him. Let's pause and pray. Father God, I thank you for your love, your power, your presence that you pour out upon us continuously. Lord, we often don't recognize it, but it's always happening. Thank you for how much you love us. Thank you. You want us to know you. And thank you. You reveal yourself to us through your word, through the times we spend in prayer with you, through our Christian brothers and sisters. So Father, this morning, let us wait upon you. Let us have open hearts, open minds to hear your voice. And let us respond to that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First and foremost this morning, I want to speak about John. And I'm not sure about you, but when I think of biblical characters, I have this tendency to sometimes elevate them above humanity. I think, you know, these guys are just so awesome. These guys are so great that they're at this level and there's no way I could ever possibly hope to attain that. Have you fallen into that trap? I mean, I've got these biblical heroes, which I think these guys are just so awesome. But the truth is, they're simply human. They're no different to you and I, but they have submitted fully to God in a way which allows Holy Spirit to work through them ever so much more and more powerfully than, they ever seem to, than God ever seems to in my life. And to this end, with this theme, I love the way this section starts in, chapter, in verse 9 sorry, of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In John's introduction, he doesn't use any titles. He doesn't use anything that would elevate him above us. And in a way, that could be expected. I think it's reasonable to say that he was an apostle and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I'm your brother and partner in this tribulation. He's immediately offering this word of encouragement. He's immediately saying that, you know, I understand what you're going through right at this time. And I think in those times when we've suffered, those times when we've had experiences come against us which have been difficult, the person who seems to speak to the, the most to us is the one who comes alongside and sits with us in the midst of that struggle and suffering because they've been there. I'm sure you've experienced that. And sometimes that person who speaks the most to us is the one who doesn't speak at all. They're the one who comes alongside and they suffer with us. They know what we're going through. And so they speak to us. And this is what John's saying. He's saying, I've been through what you're going through. I have been through this tribulation. I know the struggle. And then he strings together three themes or three words. There are actually three words in Greek. And it's these three words. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. And when he speaks about tribulation, it means pressure. 
And the type of pressure we're talking about is as if this heavy rock had been placed upon you. It's that type of pressure. But then this word came to mean all sorts of pressure relating to persecution in the early church. That's how it's used throughout the New Testament. And as many of us have experienced, when that persecution or pressure comes... The temptation is to walk away. The temptation is to no longer continue to do whatever activity it was that brought that pressure upon us or that persecution upon us. We move away from that circle of friends. We quit that job. We change churches, whatever it is. We want to move away from that pressure. But John here reminds us that he knows the tribulation. But he also knows the patient endurance that should go with that tribulation. And he knows that each and every one of us as believers can exercise that if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of us seem to interpret patient endurance as this sitting out, this separating ourselves from the situation and just being on the sidelines for a while. You know, we'll patiently endure what's going on until it passes and then we'll get back into what we're doing. That is not what is being spoken about here. It's not about waiting on the sidelines. This patient endurance is a patient endurance that brings courage. It's a patient endurance that allows us to be conquerors in the midst of overwhelming opposition. It's a confidence in a future where the present sufferings we are facing will seem like naught because we endure it until the end. It has a power to transform any suffering into glory because of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. A hope in the kingdom that is to come. It's what John has set his heart on. It's about not focusing on my present circumstances or my situations, but elevating my eyes to Jesus and understanding he's got a greater plan. Think about the situation of where John is. He's on the Isle of Patmos. It's a pretty much deserted island. He's there because he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. People had to provide for him. There was nothing on the island. He is suffering. And yet, he finds time to spend with Jesus. He believes in the glory that is yet to come. He believes that there's going to be a kingdom, a greater thing. And he says, the only way glory can come from this present affliction is to endure. And this is something that's mentioned continuously throughout Scripture. There's a few examples up here on the data projectors, Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging each other, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we endure... We will also reign with him. And the key to obtaining this endurance is keeping our eyes, our focus on what really matters. It's about maintaining a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. And John, in the midst of everything, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's on this island with nothing. A desolate place. And yet he still sets this time aside for God. He wants to meet with his Lord and Saviour. His circumstances are not going to predict that. And here he says, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day being Sunday when Christ rose from the dead. 
This is the transition between worshipping on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, to worshipping on the Sunday. And this is one of the first mentions of the Lord's Day, which was actually Sunday, and where the early Christian church came together to worship the Lord. And when we talk about being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, there's this whole bunch of things we could talk about. I'm actually not going to go there. Uh, It's controversial. Just about every commentator has a different take on what that actually means. But it's sufficient to say, and they all agree, that he at the very least was praying. And that's why he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was doing so on Sunday. And he celebrated that because he knew Jesus rose from the dead on that day. And John shows that no matter where we are, no matter what hardships we are facing, no matter what we're going through, we still need to connect with Jesus. John sets aside time. He chooses to put aside the things that are pressing in on him, where his next meal's coming from, whether he's going to be flogged later that day, or any of those things, and he chooses to meet with God. And because he does that on this day, he sees a vision of God's glory. Pastor David spoke about Billy Graham. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is what John's about to do. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He has this vision. And in this vision, he initially hears a voice. And this is a voice like a trumpet. Now, I'm not sure about you. When I think about that, it's this voice that just blasts out and just knocks us over. But that's not what this voice is like. This voice is just very, very clear. There is no mistaking it. It could be in a very quiet situation. You would still hear that voice. It could be in the midst of the most thunderous storm. You would still hear that voice. So this voice, which sounds like a trumpet, is just this clear voice. It cuts through everything. It goes to the depths of your heart. He knows that this is the voice of someone who will be heard by all people. And this voice tells him to write what he sees. And John does what all of us would do. He turns to see where this voice is coming from. Who is it that is speaking? And he turns and he sees the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands. Incredible that when he turns around and he sees this vision before him, the first thing he mentions are these seven golden lampstands. And they're mentioned in Exodus 25, where the Lord was giving instruction to Moses about what was to be made for the tent of meeting. They're also mentioned as golden lampstands in 1 Kings 7, when Solomon's temple is being built, there was to be five on the right and there was to be five on the left. It's also mentioned in Zechariah 4.22, when Zechariah has this vision of the golden lampstand. And in all these cases, the vision of the golden lampstands and the lampstands that are mentioned do so just after a revelation, a revealing of God himself. It's no different in this passage of Scripture. The golden lampstands are there and standing in the midst is the Son of Man. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. God is revealed again to John. And it's adequate to say that there is so much lost in translation in this little verse. There's so much that we miss because we skip over this. But this long robe that is described is the same long robe that the high priests would wear. There's a word that continues throughout Scripture from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So when we read about this long robe that he is wearing, it's speaking of this high priestly robe. 
And the high priests were required to wear this robe. It's mentioned in Exodus 28.4 and 29.5. And they were required to wear, it, wear this whenever they were serving in the temple. And the sash of the high priest was actually multicolored and had a few threads of gold woven through that sash. The sash went around here. And you can see that this one, though, this one is a golden sash. It is actually made of pure gold, the sash that this son of man is actually wearing. And those who read this, those who hear John, would know straight away that he's speaking of a great high priest. One who has access to God. One who opens the way for others to come into God's presence. And in this vision, Jesus is represented as the Son of Man. And his garments show him to be the great high priest. The golden sash shows him to be the highest stature that there possibly is. And this is the great high priest who sits at God's right hand and intercedes for us. It shows that Jesus is fulfilling that high priestly role and continuing to open the way so people like you and I have access to God. But the terms used for this garment don't only represent a high priest. It's also the dress the great people wore in Old Testament times. It's the dress of princes and kings. And again, the word is used to talk about the robe of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18, the robe of Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 5, and the robes of the princes of the sea who laid them aside in Ezekiel 26, 16. And the robe Jesus is wearing is a robe of royalty. It's the robe of a king. And Jesus, by the very clothes he's wearing in this vision is represented as priest and king. And then there's one more aspect, which I think is very applicable. In the vision that Daniel received in Daniel 10, there's a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. This man is a messenger from God. This man... And Jesus have the same description for the clothing that they're wearing. So in this very image of Jesus, John is telling us that this son of man, Jesus himself, is represented as prophet, priest, and king. They're the roles that Jesus is carrying on. And as prophet, he brings and proclaims the truth of God. As priest, he intercedes for us and provides a way for us to enter into God's presence. And as king, he has received power and dominion and authority from God. This is who John sees as he prays. And he stands amongst the lampstands. I've lost one. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. It is Jesus who's been given authority over the church. We don't have time to go through each one of the beginning of the six letters that are sent to the church, but there's these six letters that are sent. And let's just have a look at the first one. Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we've seen in Revelation 1.16, in his right hand, he holds seven stars. 
And there's this correlation between what is said in chapter 1 and the rest of the introductions to the churches. I want you to go home and I want you to dig into those. I want you to see the connections that are actually made between the chapter we've read and what actually is, an, is uh, written to the six churches. We don't have time to go into it this morning, so just a little bit of homework. But we'll look at something else. Oh, this really doesn't like me today. We're going to look at the titles of Christ. As we look at this too, some of you will think that these are more like descriptions, and I'm happy for you to call them whatever you want, but this is the rest of what we've got in this passage before us. And we see this one, the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, white like snow. And this comes from the vision Daniel had of the Ancient One, the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.9. And he says that in Daniel, he says that his hair was like pure wool and it's talking about how white it is and it's representative of great age and in this case it's representing this external sorry the eternal existence of the Lord Jesus Christ it's representing that he always was and some also argue for purity in the midst of this as well and I'm not going to deny that when we think about pure white wool or pure white snow before it's been defiled there, there is nothing like it and so symbolically this is saying that Jesus pre-existed and he always was always is always will be without sin that's the Jesus that we know and his eyes his eyes were like a flame of fire in, in Daniel 10.6, it says, The person who brought the vision to Daniel had eyes like flaming torches. What's this about? I mean, I, I don't know. And uh, no one else seems to know either. But generally, people believe that when Jesus looks upon a person, it's a penetrating, searching vision that he has upon them. It's one that brings to light those things that are dark within us. It's one of those things that calls us to account. It's one of those things that reveals the innermost secrets of me. When I, when I lay myself before Jesus and ask him to search me, that's how he searches me. He searches with these eyes that are like flame. And yet, the same eyes project his love, his compassion, his care, and his kindness. And his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. You know, what's translated burnished bronze here, again, is the best that they could come up with. They think that this could actually be a lost metal that is mentioned in Scripture, something that they refined, uh, uh, but they don't really know what it is. So burnished bronze is the best that they could come up with. But the thinking is that this is a strong metal. It's something that is very, very difficult to break or damage or anything like that. And it stands for the strength and steadfastness of God because it's his feet. He will not be moved ever. His word is eternal. It will not change. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. In Ezekiel 43.2, we're told the coming of the Lord is like the sound of many waters. Think about where John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's got this sea breaking against the shore continuously. And it's powerful. I think we can all agree with that. It can be thunderous as it lands on the shore, but it can also be that gentle whisper that lulls us to sleep. I don't know if you love water. I, I've always lived by the water. This is the first time we haven't. Um, it's very difficult living here compared to where we have been. But it's just beautiful to have that there. And you can see the power of the sea. And then again, it is that same thing that lulls us to sleep sometimes. How true is that 
of our God. And then in his right hand, he holds these seven stars. That's just so incredible. This is something that's unique to Revelation. It's not spoken of anywhere else. And it shows the power of Jesus to behold the stars of heaven. Or even angels, because as you move on in Scripture, you'll see that he says the seven stars are the seven angels. Either way, he's holding them in his right hand. And yet when John falls down dead, what does, what does this son of man do? The same hand that holds the seven stars reaches out and puts his hand on John's shoulder. Are you grasping what an incredible God this is? How? He's just so mighty, so loving, so gracious, so powerful, and yet so tender and gentle to each one of us. Then it gets scary again. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In Isaiah 11.4, Isaiah says, God will strike the ground with the rod of his mouth. And Isaiah himself has been given this mouth like a sharp two-edged sword in Isaiah 49.2. This is the power of God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word has the power to change us. If we listen to it, it will strip away anything and everything that places barriers between us and God. His word alone has the power to destroy pride, self-righteousness. In fact, each and every sinful attitude, if we listen and allow it to penetrate our lives. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Think about when Moses was in God's presence. His face was shining when he returned to camp, so much so that he had to put a veil on so the people wouldn't be so petrified of him. He was reflecting God's glory. Think about when the disciples saw Jesus transfigured in Matthew 17, 12. It says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And this is a glimpse of what our time in glory will be like. Revelation 21, 23 says, we will not need light when we come to spend that time in eternity with God because the glory of God will give light and the Lamb, Jesus, will be the lamp. In taking all this on board, John says the only thing, or does the only thing that could be expected of us as humans. He falls down as if dead. Who are we in the presence of an almighty, all-powerful, all-glorious God? We got nothing. And I remember, I've possibly said this several times before, as I grew up and I read that passage of Scripture that said, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I had pictures and images of angels standing at the gates, knocking people behind their knees so they'd bow down. That is not what is going to happen. We are going to see, just as John saw, this magnificent image of Jesus, and we're going to hit the ground, each and every one of us. No one will be left standing. Every question will be silenced, and every voice will praise God and acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. Finally, I want to talk about Jesus' declaration. He lays his hand on John's right shoulder and he says the following fear not 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive evermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. It's quite an image when we think about what's going on here. Fear not. These are the two words that Jesus said to his disciples as he walked out onto the water to them. Fear not, it is I. Those few disciples that went with him to the transfiguration, they hear this incredible voice of God. He says, don't fear. And he says it here to John. And he said it to me. Fear not. There's nothing in this world that can come against us. There's nothing that will ever snatch us from the hand of God. He always was. He always will be. He was dead. Now he's alive. He conquered death so we may have eternal life with him. And he is waiting for us. Death has lost its sting. It still has its gates. There's still that barrier there. But our Lord holds the keys. Is that something worth celebrating? And we may have fear as we get to that time when we are going to cross from this life to the next. But it is him who holds the keys. And just as he met John, I have no doubt that Jesus is going to meet us. And for me, the message that comes from what we've had this morning is... Whatever you're facing, there are others who've been through something similar. We are called to lift our eyes from our problems and focus on Jesus. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar? And this is the God we worship. We need to apply the foundational truths of Scripture to our lives. We need to believe that what has been said this morning is not just said to John. John was told to write it down. Why? So the six churches would read it and we would read it. It is a biblical truth for each and every one of us. It is something we need to say, I believe it and I'm going to apply it to our lives. Our suffering in this day and age is temporary. That's what John tells us. He says it will fade. And we compared to the lives that we're going to have with Christ in all of eternity, they will seem like nothing. I know in the midst of it, that is not the case. I've been there. I know those struggles. And you know, it seems like we're praying for God to change the situation. We're praying that God's truth be revealed. We pray that we be exonerated in whatever situation it is. And we have to wait. Oh, yeah, there was something about patient endurance there. But, you know, I'm in the midst of this and I have to wait. And it's as if Jesus turns up at the last possible moment. And you know what? When he does that and he's done it to me again and again and again, it's like, that was perfect timing, God. That's exactly where it should have happened. I, I, I found it very difficult to go through all of this, but now you've done it. I can see that you had a plan and a purpose all the way through that. And your name is honored and glorified as a result. And people have turned towards you because of it. Your perfect timing, Lord. And more than anything, I believe that in the scripture, it tells us we need to connect more with Jesus in order to endure. Jesus revealed all of this to John when? When he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. John was praying. And Jesus said, John, 
I want you to write this down. He's getting John to write it down so we will read it. To me, that says we should be praying. We should be reading the word. It's two mandates that we've got from this passage of scripture. And if you don't do that, you don't love Jesus. It's really that simple. How can you say you love Jesus if you're not getting to know him? We need to get serious about our faith. And in the midst of our struggles, God meets us. It's not easy. I know it's not easy. And sometimes the prayer could be, you know what, God, I, I, I just don't want to spend time with you. I, I don't know why I would. Flick the Bible open. Read a few passages. Do it. God will begin to speak to you. I remember some of my most holy prayers were screaming at God. Did he meet me? Yeah, he did. Did I acknowledge it at the time? Nope. It was just too hard. You come out the other end, though, and you can see that thread running through everything that happened. The people who'd suddenly turn up at your door, those who would be praying with you. Guy prayed with me, for me for four years. I didn't even know. Each and every day. I didn't even get to thank him. He'd passed away. But the ladies that prayed with him said, he prayed for you every time we met. We need to connect with Jesus by setting aside time to pray with him, to read his word. He is the messenger, remember, bringing us the word of truth. It's how we connect with him. And God has given Jesus authority over all things. It will be him that we bow to come that day. He always was. He always will be. It's not only true for all of eternity. It's true for your life. He's always with you. He always will be. Let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the power of your word. Lord, I'm always astounded by what you say through it. And Lord, I pray for each one of us here today that our desire will be to draw closer to you. That Lord, we'll realize that I failed you so many times. I haven't met you as frequently as and often as I should. I haven't trusted you in those times that have been difficult. And Lord, I want to return to you. I pray that's the prayer of each one of us. We want to know you more. So Lord... Show us our hard hearts. Bring us to that point where we realise we need to humble ourselves afresh to you. And Lord, continue to do the great work you're doing in this place. You are a good God. And you want the best for us. Give us the wisdom to ask for what we need. And for some of us, let that be this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.